and welcome to Strong Habits, the accidentally feminist fitness podcast on all things training, nutrition and mindset. I'm your host, Penny Varvaridis, and this is episode 50. Can you believe I've done this 50 times already? More, actually, as I have a few interviews recorded and lined up for you with some really awesome people. Today's episode is going to be a little different. I wanted to make episode 50 something to remember, so I've asked a few different people to contribute and we cover a few different topics. Before I get into that, I wanted to let you know that you can now pre-order the Strong Habits 30-Day Bender from my website, pennyvarvridis.com forward slash 30-Day Bender, or just go to the website and click the Bender button at the top. I want you all to join me for a bender unlike any other. For 30 days, you will focus on your flexibility with the specific goal of building a deeper range and building strength and control in those end range positions. The intense nature of this mobility protocol will allow you to make huge progress in your flexibility and stability in just 30 days, covering the sort of ground you'd usually spend months covering. This digital product will be yours forever with video demonstrations for all of the workouts and a clear explanation of how to run through the program. You'll also get a discount price on my new mobility subscription service, Bender, for just $7.50 a month instead of $9.99. So many bargains for you. The early bird price for the 30-day Bender is £50. Get in there quick before the price goes up mid-November. Anyway, without further ado... Let's get stuck in with some client questions. Polina asked how to get yourself to move when it feels like your soul has been sucked out of your body and you just want to sleep all the time. (laughs) This is such an interesting one especially coming from a mental health well-being point of view. This is something that I have felt so many times in varying intensities. I think step one, every single time, is to check when your period is due. Nine times out of ten, this feeling is hitting you a few days before it starts, and then you'll feel human again. If that's the case, just give yourself a cuddle and pick one thing to focus on at a time and just try and do a nice thing. This isn't going to stick around. It will come back, but it isn't going to stick around. If we're talking about depression, I think it's always worth going to the doctor. Maybe there's something that they can do to ease the heaviness enough for you to do the things. Depression is hard. It's not just mental, it's physical. Your body responds just like your mind does. It gets tired and heavy. It gets harder and harder to move. This is something we go into on episode 34 with philosopher Sophie Thomas. I totally recommend going back to listen to that one. In fact... I asked Sophie what she would recommend when it comes to fighting the urge to stay in bed all day. Here's what she had to say. Essentially, I would say if someone's in a place where they literally cannot get out of bed and they are in a, rightfully so, massive state of depression and that's not their fault and that is not something they can just turn off a switch for like best bet is to think of your value i.e think if i wasn't in this bad space if i wasn't this depressed what would i want to achieve out of life what could i in a pipe dream almost imagine that and then from there i'd work backwards so let's say one of my values might be um creativity but i couldn't get out of bed that day or i felt really really low 
I would do the smallest thing that would align myself with that value that I would have in my life. So it could literally be doing some doodling. It could be writing down my depressive thoughts. It could be reading a fiction book. Anything. Anything that doesn't necessitate massive bouts of energy and exhaustion, but still gets you closer to where you want to be. Because then you're living a life of value, and that's going to be responding in your dopaminergic pathway system. Are you, your brain is going to tell you that you're doing something that feels good and aligns with your lifestyle that you envision. And as a result, that will help give some positive feedback to make you feel less inclined to change every day. This is really important, and I think it's something that we should all be thinking about, regardless of the presence of depression. Knowing your values is like having a compass. If you know what's important to you, you know what you want. You can figure out where to go and how to get there. But if you don't know, then doing anything of meaning becomes difficult. I am a big fan of journaling for stuff like this. It's such a useful tool to get to know yourself, get to know your goals, check in with your values and your actions on a regular basis. If we're talking a more general sense of missing motivation, then finding a routine makes a huge difference. Sometimes you just have to commit to do something. Start really small. It needs to be small enough that you'll do it. Then you can build from there. This is really important and it's worth reinforcing every day. What I try to do is have that daily check-in. Each evening I'll make myself a tiny promise for tomorrow for the thing that I want to do. And then I'll also review the promise that I made myself last night and reflect on how my day went. Every time you keep a promise to yourself, you build this sense of self-efficacy, you build trust, you start to believe that you are in fact a person who does what they say they'll do. And with that, you become such a person. I asked Mr Discipline himself, Jamie Alderton, what he thought about self-motivating and generally getting shit done. Here's what he had to say. I'm not a big fan of motivation. A lot of people might think that I am, but I'm not. And the reason being is if you only do things when you're motivated, you won't get much done because motivation is doing things when you feel like doing it. One thing I try and say to people is that you need to learn to become disciplined because discipline is doing things regardless of how you feel. There's lots of days where I don't want to leave the house. There's lots of days where I don't want to post on social media. There's lots of days when I don't want to go to the gym. There's lots of days when I don't want to jump in an ice cold sea in October. But I do them anyway. And the reason for doing that is the feeling that I'm going to get after I do it the feeling of accomplishment after I've left the house. Doing things regardless of how you feel and then doing them enables you to do more things. And it's not easy, but if life was easy, we'd all be millionaires walking around with six packs. Jamie has been jumping in the sea every morning for about a year, which is mind-blowing. When you remember, this is the UK. The water here is unpleasant at the best of times, let alone in the dead of winter. I used to know Ninja who would meditate in the snow or in a waterfall. JC dips remind me of that, of that commitment to yourself to do a thing that is really unpleasant because you know it'll make you feel good. 
and because you know that if you can do that hard thing you can do anything what big challenge is there that can stop you when you are the master of your own mind now obviously not everybody needs to do such dramatic challenges to prove their mental grit to themselves and Jamie was a soldier and the ninja was a ninja so you know normal life things but it's an important lesson I think in sometimes just committing to do a thing that you don't really want to do because if you can get into a routine of doing it then you will be less easily stopped by your own indecisiveness and apathy towards a particular task and often that that act of just constantly doing the thing eventually you start to look forward to the thing or maybe not the really unpleasant thing but you start to look forward to other things that you've been putting off anyway so Dave actually asked about ice baths this week for recovery which also made me think of Jay jumping in the cold sea in terms of recovery, an ice bath is actually kind of a bad idea. It reduces the rate of muscle growth when you jump into cold water post-exercise. There was a 2015 study comparing the effects of cold water immersion and active recovery on changes in muscle mass and strength after 12 weeks of strength training, as well as the effects of each treatment on hypertrophy. And they found that cold water immersion reduced long-term gains in muscle mass and strength. It also blunted the activation of key protein and satellite cells in the skeletal muscle up to two days after strength training. And yet, the world is full of athletes who do it and are still much stronger and fitter than us. So maybe there is something in there. But maybe that something comes from those mental benefits I mentioned first, in training your mind to find some calm immersed in water. I think when it comes to recovery specifically, thinking about ice baths is splitting hairs. What would make a much larger difference is getting your nutrition right, getting enough sleep and moving often and well. This is another reason I try and encourage you all to do 10 minutes of mobility a day. Moving your body in a gentle and frequent way will help with the healing. Sleep is probably the hardest part of that equation. Society prioritises everything over sleep. Add living through a pandemic and the impact that that will be having to all of our minds. Sleep is a struggle for a lot of people. But without enough sleep, recovery is slow and, well, shit. In fact, a research, a research, <laughs> research has shown that with the same calorie deficit, you'll lose about the same amount of weight regardless of if you get eight and a half or five and a half hours of sleep per night. But what that weight loss is made of is considerably different. The less sleep you get, the less fat you lose and the more muscle mass you lose. The more sleep you get, the more muscle you're able to keep, so the weight loss is made up of more fat mass. So that means if you are trying to diet and you're also on a shit sleep system where you're not, you're not getting enough sleep, you might be losing weight, but you are likely losing far more muscle mass and far less fat mass than 
you would hope. And that is not ideal. Nobody wants to lose muscle mass. The muscle is important for our longevity and our health and our ability to do the things that we want to do. And the solution, of course, is working on sleep. So not only does sleep make it, does not sleeping make it harder to build muscle in the first place, it's making it harder for you to keep it. So the moral of the story here is to not really have cold baths after training as any sort of recovery method, but to maybe jump in some cold water every day as an experiment if you want to. Living in London means obviously there isn't that much water that you'd really want to jump in, and I do not recommend taking a dip in the Thames. But you could do 30 seconds cold in the shower every day and be your own experiment. Maybe it'll make you feel great. Maybe it won't do anything. Maybe it doesn't really matter. I remember my dad telling me to have hot, cold, hot, cold showers, contrast showers, when I was younger. And we used to go to Taekwondo together. I remember hating it, but thinking somehow it made me stronger because dad said so. I'm not sure it actually did, but I don't think it hurt either. And I think a lot of the time our ideas of what is good and helpful are passed down through generations before we had science answering those questions, like how we are often told to make soup when we feel sick, because it'll make us feel better. But is it the soup? Or is it because we are getting some nutrients and something warm and soup is comforting? That's by the by. So, next question. Ella asked, how to balance busy work life with training? I feel like this is the million dollar question right here. Or pound, I suppose. The thing everybody wants to know. It can be really hard to find that balance, especially when you're first getting started with a new thing. The main thing really is to try and get into a routine. So planning certain repeatable things into your week. It's obviously extra hard when you work shifts and that when your week is always changing. So you have to try and plan that in too. One way could be to just make sure to get your 10 minutes of mobility in on the long days that you know you're not going to be able to train. Make that a non-negotiable 10 minutes every day either before or after work or while you're at work if you know that you've got the time and space. Do it at the same time every day. Now, that doesn't mean the same time of the 24-hour day of earth rotations, but rather of your day. You'll be waking up and going to work and sleeping all at different times if you're working shifts, so if you always do your mobility when you wake up, then that's the time of day, of your day, even if some days that's seven in the morning and some days it's If all the things feel like they are a bit too much, focus on doing the bare minimum. What is the least amount that you can do to move forwards towards your goals? Do that. For a lot of people, that's going to be doing your mobility, going for a walk every day, eating a variety of fruit and vegetables all day and doing two or three workouts a week. Try to focus on just doing those things each day and week. Even if they're short, that would be more helpful than trying to do loads and ending up not doing anything. Again, I'm going to come back to that journal. It's so useful to have those daily check-ins with yourself. Be accountable to yourself. Be honest. Are you doing the things that you said you would do? If you're not, is it because the things are too hard? What can you do to make it easier so that you may as well do it? When it comes to your daily walk, 
I find having a two-tier system is quite helpful. So goal one is go outside for a walk every day. Goal two is get 70,000 steps over the week. This means that you can get more steps in on some days and less on others, but all the days are working towards a mutual endpoint. If 70,000 seems too far away, make it less. Look at your current weekly step count and see if you can add 7,000 steps across the week. If 70,000 seems too easy, do the same in reverse, so you're adding some more to that target. Your targets should be movable, they should be designed around you. Putting your training sessions and maybe even your walks into your calendar can also be really helpful so then you are planning your week based on what is realistic, what is plausible and what is helpful. If you can make your training and walking a priority, the same as if you were going to work or to meeting a friend for some socially distanced chat, then it will be infinitely easier to integrate it into your life. It has to be a priority. It comes back to what Sophie said earlier about finding your values. If you value your health, you'll make it a priority. And once you really hone in on that, it becomes much easier to fit things in. That said, I am a huge advocate of making things easy. I really recommend making extra food to stick in the fridge so that you can eat again tomorrow. Now, that doesn't mean you need to food prep for the week on a Sunday, although I do salute the people who have that sort of patience. No, I just mean make extra. If you're cooking dinner anyway, make enough for tomorrow. That's an easy way to make sure that you're not living off meal deals or snacks when you're at work, which, let's be honest, is most people's go-to work lunch choice, just because it's convenient and it's there. So you'll save yourself the hassle of going to the shop, of eating things that may not support your goals, and you'll also save yourself a few quid every day. What a dream. Anybody listening to this, unsure of where to start, I want you to grab your phone and put something in your diary. Either your walk, or your training sessions, or your mobility. Do it now. Grab your phone. Whatever the thing that you want to introduce into your life. Be realistic. If you're driving, don't grab your phone, by the way. Wait until afterwards. Safety first. Don't add loads of things. Don't make it take hours. Put, put it somewhere where you can definitely do it. So... If you're going to commit to doing 10 minutes of mobility in the morning when you wake up, move your alarm 10 minutes earlier too. Make it fit into your day and let me know how you get on. So I was talking to a couple of clients this week about being able to run faster and further. I work with a lot of runners towards such goals and there's almost never any running in our actual sessions apart from a form check on the treadmills if necessary. Mostly the focus is on building strength and mobility. If you think about running, about the amount of force going through your body as your foot hits the ground over and over hundreds, if not thousands of times, it's a lot. And runners are always getting hurt from ankles to knees to hips, even into back sometimes. This isn't because running is inherently bad. It's just a question of volume control. Usually when an injury occurs, it's a case of overuse and underprepared. People running more and more without building the necessary strength and movement through their joints to cope with the increase. Running feels like a thing that you should just be able to do, so people just go and do it. I spoke with running and strength coach Ollie McCarthy about why training, strength training is so important for runners. Here's what Ollie had to say. 
Hey, it is Ollie McCarthy here. I am a running and strength coach based out of London and Tunbridge Wells. And today I'm going to be talking about uh, why strength training is important for runners. So there's two kind of sides to uh, the strength training uh, that we're going to talk about. The first one is the mobility side. And then the the second one is what you would typically call the, the strength element of, of training as well. So the big thing um, that we're trying to do when we're looking at strength training for runners is basically moving them uh, more effectively. And if you think about our, our day-to-day lives, they're a long way uh, away from how our bodies are supposed to move. So if you think about day-to-day, we spend probably 80% of our time sat down. Uh, if we spend a huge amount of that that day sat down and then we go and walk or even run then more than likely we're not going to be moving as effectively as possible Um, and because we're not moving our joints through their full range over time you will see a reduction in in movement through the joint uh, and where there's ineffective movement you can see over time um, injury and pain especially in a kind of high impact uh, sport such as as running so a big part of what i do with athletes is just try and get their joints moving uh, better to begin with so and and that can be really simple that can be as as simple as ankle rolls uh, open and close the gate doing some cat cows um, spending five to ten minutes doing mobility before you head out the door is what I've found to be a game changer um, for most people um, as soon as you can begin to get their joints moving more efficiently then actually you can get into a better position to run in so although we're we're looking at it from probably more of a holistic sense in in that we're trying to move away from people being in pain actually we're going to have a really positive effect on performance as well just because we're getting people in a better position now if we then uh, look at the strength side of things um, we're kind of we're looking at strength um, from kind of two perspectives as well again there is the the kind of mitigating injury side of things and then there is the performance side of things now from the injury side because of the the high impact and the repetitive nature of running what you can see is overuse injuries because we are using the same muscles over and over again if those muscles are not strong enough then you they can get injured so one of the big things that we're doing is trying to get those muscles stronger so that they can deal with the amount of force and the repetition that's going um, through the muscle and then on the flip side of that if we can make a muscle kind of one or two percent stronger then it is going to have a positive effect on performance because of again the repetitive nature of running you know getting one percent stronger per step might seem like a really small um, jump but actually over the course of a race where you might be taking thousands and thousands of steps 
um, that is going to have a significant impact. So they're the kind of two ways uh, or the two reasons why we would include strength training in into our, our running. Now, in terms of what you should be doing, well, I tend to lean towards um, minimum effective dose. And one of the big reasons for that is that a lot of people who are running just want to run. Um, so what I don't want to do is overload them with the amount of strength training that, you know, I don't want to overload them with strength training and take them away from the thing that they love. I want to do kind of as, as little as possible that is going to be as, if, as effective as possible um, to allow them to go out and run still, but to do so injury free and to help with performance. So um, first thing I get runners to do is, is just mobility. And that is either uh, literally before they run or sometime in the day before they run. And that's five to 10 minutes. Most people can, can kind of find five to 10 minutes. And to be honest, I would rather they spend five to 10 minutes doing that mobility than actually um, then going for a longer run. If we can get them moving better and running more effectively, then a shorter run will will be more efficient than sending them out on a longer run that takes them a couple of kilometers to get into things. So mobility is always a priority. And then we can layer a couple of kind of strength movements on as well. So we start at the feet. Um, the stronger someone's feet are, the better. So I'll try and get people to spend as much time barefoot as possible or in minimalist shoes. That will naturally just build up the strength of their feet because they're getting used more. Second thing we want to think about is your soleus, which is one of the calf muscles. So we want to do any calf raise movement with a bent knee and that will target that muscle, which in particular gets overlooked quite a lot. Moving further up the body, we would focus on a single leg strength movement. I particularly like a reverse lunge. Um, and then going a little bit further up, we want to begin thinking about our core as well. So uh, one of the most effective movements that I've found is a dish hold. So you've got kind of four areas there that you can begin thinking about if you are a runner. And although it might sound like quite a lot, actually what you're looking at is kind of 15 to 20 minutes of, of strength training. And if you break that down, then what we can begin doing is kind of either pairing that on to the end of a run, maybe, or having kind of another training session that we can just slot in in the morning uh, and then run in the evening. So actually, it's not a huge, um, it's not going to be taking a huge amount of, of your time. We don't necessarily want to completely separate our strength training and our running unless you want to um, but there's some areas that if you work on them then you will get stronger and you will become a better runner so basically mobility and strength and what we want to be doing is um, trying to fit daily mobility if possible if not do it before you run and then doing one to two smaller strength training sessions 
um, over the course of the week. If you do that, then I guarantee you will become a better runner and will stay injury free. Ollie mentioned a lot of really important points there. I'm glad he brought up spending more time barefooted. I've mentioned this a few times before. Strong feet are really important. Feet that can move. I have recently bought a pair of cheap barefoot shoes that are really nice. I don't run in mine, but I've been doing lots of walking around and some gym things. Usually I just take my shoes off for most of the gym things, so it's nice having shoes that move enough that I don't feel restricted. What you want is for your toes to be able to move and spread out and not be squished together all of the time. I just searched for water shoes rather than barefoot shoes to get a pair for under £30. You are welcome. Save yourself some money. So I've been using modified push-ups with a few different clients lately as a means of creating a mechanical drop set. This allows them to get much more volume in by making the shape a little bit easier to complete. They'll usually do an amount of full push-ups followed immediately by an amount of modified ones. And then depending on how hard they're working, sometimes each set leads to fewer full ones and more modified ones. It's a way of being able to get more work in than you would otherwise be able to do if you only ever did the full ones. There have been a few occasions where I have had to correct people when they've called them girl push-ups. This sort of language is so restrictive. It makes men feel shame for needing to modify and it keeps women believing that they are incapable of progressing. It's not... It's not the one. Uh, language is incredibly powerful. I've had many different clients talk to me about experiences where they've been in a group training class and the instructor has referred to push-ups from the knees as ladies push-ups. Uh, I've had cis men feel really uncomfortable because they've been doing push-ups on their knees. I've had non-binary people feel really uncomfortable because they don't identify as being a lady. I've had cis women feel really uncomfortable because they don't identify with being a lady. Um, so it's language is so important. The first class I joined in at Fieldworks Gym, one of, other than thinking, wow, love this kind of training, brilliant strength and conditioning, really enjoyed it, lovely atmosphere. My other like big takeaway was Stu didn't use any gendered language in the class. And I, I, had, I just say, like, coming from like commercial gyms where it's completely normalised, um, it was just brilliant. I was like, this is this is where I need to be. This is brilliant. Um, so yeah, when you've got a group of people, I think actually, if you can use gender neutral language, it's much more inclusive. And across the board, it's not just inclusive in terms of uh, for people that are non-binary or trans. It's inclusive because people don't want to feel like they're being categorised as something they don't identify with because they're doing a certain exercise. So everything can be, all exercises should be able to be regressed or progressed. And the language should just be descriptive and not gendered. Um, okay, hope that helps. That was Becca Knapp. They are a strength coach based at the same gym as Ollie. I think the idea of how we use language is so important. Words are powerful, and the words you use to describe what you're doing or who you are, they matter. 
This applies to whether you're calling a modified push-up a girl push-up or a ladies push-up or you're telling yourself that you can't do a thing because it's just not a thing that you can do. Words matter. And for any coaches listening, I don't know if any coaches listen, but if you're there, I want you to take what Becca said on board because this is how you cultivate a safe space for people, whether cis, trans or non-binary. Language matters. So, okay, how else can we make sure that we're able to properly help clients that might not fall into the gender binary? Um, Okay, so in terms of special considerations, training people that um, identify outside of the gender binary, I would say that when you're working with anyone from a a marginalised community, you've got to acknowledge that perhaps they've not had necessarily the most positive experience in terms of um, going to commercial gyms or perhaps even the experience of PE at school and that sort of thing. Um, again, um, cautious of making assumptions. I know I keep saying that. I just am really reluctant to make huge generalisations. But some things do seem to crop up and that is that... The fitness industry um, does seem to have more of a kind of heightened gender divide historically in terms of going into gyms and people even referring to the free weights area as the men's area and a lot of classes kind of being tailored to a stereotypical notion of what women cis women are looking to achieve with like legs, bums and tums and this kind of emphasis on hit and cardio um so even just walking into one of those gyms if you don't identify within that binary it can feel like a a space that is not inclusive so it's kind of um i think a consideration would be making sure your client or my client feels comfortable in the space that you're training in um that you know there isn't this feeling that they're being watched you know that's something I really enjoy about working at Fieldworks is there just doesn't seem to be that kind of atmosphere of other people um watching and I don't know even sometimes it's completely innocent but if people feel insecure um in a space or doing an activity that's not something they're confident with yet then they can just feel a bit more anxious so that's one thing to be careful of the other thing I already mentioned obviously was making sure that you've asked what pronouns they prefer and to respect that um um other things can be I guess uh if people experience dysphoria then that can be, you know, something else to acknowledge and be sensitive towards because so much obviously is about training effectively is about, um, you know, really trying to connect with your body. And some people may have had, you know, years of just feeling a complete disconnect from their body. Um, so just being sensitive to that. Um, sometimes it just can take longer um and also it's not linear um they can have good days bad days and again just being kind of sensitive to these things so there are a lot of preconceived ideas about how men and women differ in their training ideas that have led to many people finding themselves restricted by these stereotypes stereotypes that have no founding in any sort of science in fact 
there is no reason for anybody to train differently based on sex or gender. In terms of building muscle, everybody builds muscle the same way, by lifting weights and eating enough food. From a biological point of view, women can usually tolerate more volume and intensity with less rest, which means that if a man and a woman were doing the same workout to the same percentages, the woman wouldn't need as much rest or could in fact work at a higher percentage. This isn't going to be the case for every person in the world and it doesn't tell us anything about the people who don't fall into that binary of man-woman. I asked Becca whether they thought men and women needed to be trained differently. I tend to look at people on an individual basis and separate the sort of notion of gender being an identity with um, biological sex. So it's it can become quite nuanced if I'm working with somebody that identifies outside of the uh, gender binary. Um, so once I've kind of established what pronouns they're comfortable with um, and how their relationship with their body, obviously, you know, it's client by client basis. So it's being cautious of not making generalizations regardless of, say, if someone identifies as non-binary or trans, not making certain kind of assumptions about what they may or may not be looking to um, achieve with training. Um, it, what I found is, even working with cis men and women, there really aren't different, wildly different approaches to training. Um most people are looking to increase their fitness, are looking to get stronger, are looking to feel more confident in training um, or, you know, to be able to train pain free if they're kind of working from like uh, a history of injuries. Yeah, so it's, it can become obviously more and more nuanced um, working with people that identify identify outside of the um, gender binary but it's just being cautious of again not making generalizations there I think if I give an example say working with people that are um, say trans men and just being cautious of not like falling into this notion of a heteronormative um, approach of oh okay so if you know you are looking to masculinize your physique in um, a, you know, our sort of society's idea of what it is to be male um, and just listening to the client, so going on a client-by-client basis. That last bit is really important for always. Focus on the person in front of you, not your idea of what that person should be or want. Now, that is not just important if you're a coach dealing with a client, but generally for everybody in life, whenever you are interacting with a person. This is probably especially good advice in terms of relationships, where often we are in love with the idea of a person rather than the person themselves, and then things don't really work out when you realise that they are not what they are in your head. No one's ever going to be what they are in your head. That's not how humans work. So, yeah, pro tip of the day, just person by person basis and that's it for me today we have covered motivation depression organization running gender and language big day hopefully you think worthy of the big 5-0 
Thank you so much to my guests, Sophie Thomas, Jamie Alderton, Ollie McCarthy and Becca Knapp for joining me for this very special episode. And don't forget, you can pre-order 30 Day Bender from my website. It will be a bender unlike any other. And come on, even just for the name, which is fantastic. It's worthy of that pre-order, surely. If you liked this episode and you're wondering how you can support me, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review. Apparently these things are helpful and if I get enough ratings and reviews, iTunes will start recommending people to me who might like the show. Then I can help more people, which is a win-win for everybody, really. And that's another thing that you can do to support me in the show, in fact, which is share this episode to your social media or with your friends. If you tag me on your social media posts with your favourite part of the episode, I will share my favourites, which, to be honest, is probably all of them. I love it when you tag me, and I will generally always also share it. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at superpenny, penny with an IE, and you can find links to today's guests' Instagram handles in the description box. Until next time, folks. (laughs) 